Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome back to the podcast, Margaret O'Mara. Margaret's the Scott and Dorothy Bullet Chair of American History at the University of Washington, an author of the excellent The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks. So we're back. Uh, we're back and we're in the 1980s. And from what I understand, 1980 was a hell of a year. So what happened that year and how does it affect the story that you're telling? Yeah, well, 1980, it's the year of the Reagan revolution, right? That's that's one re- one reason it's an it's a landmark. Reagan's elected Uh over, that's over a, that's a land. That's a, a milestone for this podcast. Yeah, a milestone. This is honor, when everything got going for us spiritually. Yeah, <laughs> well, what you might not here's another uh, thing to add to your list of why 1980 is important. So, so in the fall of 1980, uh, Reagan is elected, but some other critical things happen that have a lot of bearing on the story that I tell in the code. Um, in October, a few weeks before Reagan's election, Genentech, the first biotech company of note goes public on Wall Street, has a, this massive IPO, incredible excitement over this biotech stock, which of course is brand new. 1980 is also the year that of the Bayh-Dole Act for C- for the prestige heads who are also biotech heads too, <laughs> um, that this is a, a big a, overlap, big overlap, big overlap. <laughs> but, it, but basically this is a, um, a federal a federal move that allows the federally funded research in universities to be commercialized um, and really has the biggest impact on medical, biomedical stuff in a, in a really tangible and, and very lucrative way. So Genentech goes public in October. Reagan's elected in November, uh, a big, big political earthquake. And then in the first half of December, Apple goes public. And that is also a huge, huge IPO, an incredible amount of Wall Street excitement, stock market excitement about these high tech stocks, um, really kind of grabbing onto this as the next thing. And of course, let's think about 1982 economically. You know, this is months before Detroit automakers have gone to Congress asking for bailouts. Uh, this is the, <laughs> this is, this is not good, not bleak times for American manufacturing. The competition from Japan is escalating and, and East Asia generally. Uh, there is, and now out of the ashes of that come this good news story of these companies rising like Phoenix from the ashes of stagflation, uh, high t- IT or personal computers and biotech. And it's not just, hey, there's, there's a big upside here. These companies are venture backed. They're, they're financed in unusual ways. They're led by, particularly in the case of Apple, led by a very unconventional leadership. Uh, the, the figurehead is Steve Jobs, who's at that point still in his twenties and, um, has started putting a tie, put wearing a tie, but kind of in a casual, <laughs> he's still a pretty, pretty casual floppy haired CEO. Um, and really talking about this company, not just being a product you buy, uh, not just, computers are no longer boring. All of a sudden there are these portals to empowerment and, uh, you can be creative on desktop computers. Uh, the the famous ad that 
um, a few few months before the IPO and the run-up to the IPO of Apple, the company runs full-page ads in the Wall Street Journal and other papers that people who are not uh, computer nerds read. And uh, it's these big full-page ads that feature Steve Jobs. And the headline says, uh, the comp- think of the computer. When we invented the personal computer, we invented a bicycle for the mind. And that's just a great, a great metaphor of, you know, what you can do with this machine. It is not just this, this utilitarian device, even though really it was the thing that made Apple so promising from investors' perspective was that now there were spreadsheet programs and programs that would make it a useful work computer, not just a toy to play around with. Can we talk a little about the structural level? Because this is a big transition in the history of American capitalism from a Fordist to a full-on neoliberal economy. You know, Reagan has his two famous tax cuts. Um, mm-hmm. There's ideological work done by like Milton Freeman and Arthur Laffer. Uh, and then also, as you said, like American business, the traditional American business car manufacturing is like really down. There's also this big shift to credit that happens in the late 1970s. There's stagflation. So how does this new industry fit into this larger transition in American capitalism from the investor perspective? Because my layperson's understanding, again, is that like, particularly in the last 20 years, tech becomes like the American industry. uh, And Mm -hmm. that shift begins to happen now. So I was wondering if you could Mm -hmm. talk about that for a second. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a number of of salient differences. um, But, you know, and there are a lot of a lot of things that the tech industry is kind of in step with in terms of the political climate and and what um, both both political parties need for one. I mean, one of the things that you know historians and have focused so 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 much on Republicans in the 1980s um, and really are are now beginning to talk more about Democrats in the 80s and that's and this tech high tech story is very much part of that. But we think about the companies themselves, kind of going to your question of, you know, how is this changing capitalism? Well, the companies are, look, they are, at this point, we are still talking mainly about hardware manufacturing, building things. Um, Microsoft is founded in 1976. Uh, it is uh, a software company and there are, you know, video game companies. and things, But that kind of software piece is still something that's a very nascent industry. Microsoft doesn't go public until 1986 um, and really doesn't become Microsoft um, with the giant company, the force that it becomes really until the 1990s with Windows, even though it's very significant before then. But but even though they are manufacturing things, a company like Apple or other personal computer makers, uh, including Let's keep in mind the market leaders at this time are Texas Instruments and you know, not Apple. Apple had a good chunk of the market. It was very sexy and glam, but it was not the market leader. Um, it was kind of expensive <laughs> for one <laughs> that, that, that there were better, cheaper machines to buy. And then, of course, IBM comes in with its personal computer in 1981 and immediately becomes the market leader because it's IBM. They're so dominant in business computing at that point. But even um, the you know the way that these these devices are made and also the microchips that go into the computers. That's the other big industry of Silicon Valley itself in the 60s and 70s and the 80s is there the manufacturing, the labor is very different. So that's one big difference. And one thing that the policymakers of both parties seize upon, right? One of the problems of American manufacturing is all those unionized workers that are really expensive and aging and 
recalcitrant and <laughs> difficult to scale down and scale up. And in this new sort of global flexible capitalism, uh, these these computer manufacturers, hardware manufacturers, and microchip makers are very flexible. They have been outsourcing labor to East Asia since the 1960s. The Fer Fairchild Semiconductor opens its first Hong Kong plant in 1963. So we're talking, they've been at it for a while. They have been chasing cheap labor from the get-go. Originally, they relied on a very feminized, um, highly, uh, you know, mostly uh, disproportionately immigrant workforce of non-unionized workers in California. When those workers became a little too interested in unionizing, they, they outsourced elsewhere to other parts of the United States and then elsewhere in the world. And so you have a manufacturing model that's much more flexible, that can scale up and scale down much more quickly, that can pivot. That's And also it is, um, and this is something that has particular appeal to Democratic lawmakers who are trying to figure out a way for Democrats to become a party of business, but not like big, bad, polluting business, um, but clean, new, forward-thinking business. And one of the value propositions that tech puts forth, it wasn't entirely true, was that it was clean, smokeless, no smokestacks. Um, turns out they were, you know, if you're making microchips, you are um, polluting the ground and the groundwater below wherever you're making them. They're, it's extremely dirty activity, or it can be if it's not properly contained. And it certainly wasn't in the Santa Clara Valley in California for the first couple of decades they were doing it. Um, so there are a lot of things that make and this business. And just to business. clarify, yeah. those are just the so-called Atari Democrats, right? These are these so-called Atari Democrats. Okay, sorry, just and, to, yeah. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a group of Democratic lawmakers. There are a lot of Watergate babies, people who were elected to Congress in the 1974 midterms. Gary Hart. Oh, Gary right, he's Hart. Big, yeah, he's like the big one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Gary Hart, Paul Songus, Tim Wirth, uh, there's, you know, they're, they're small but mighty. And they're also, they're not just talking about high tech. They're also talking and thinking about, you know, how can the Democratic Party go after college age suburbanites, you know, the, the emerging yuppie generation? How can we be more than the party of the hard hats? Um, and, and of course, the other thing that happens with the 1980 election is you have the Reagan Democrats, this core, the, the New Deal constituent, the New Deal order and the New Deal coalition is fracturing. And the, this very, um, the Democrats can't count, or at least these younger generation of Democrats say we have to move on from this. And maybe we don't really love these guys that much anyway, because they are wedded to some things that, you know, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about, um, some of the things, you know, they don't care about having a multi-racial, um, you know, they don't care as much about race and gender <laughs> as we do. And so they, what, Silicon Valley or the technology industry writ large is promising is this is business that's kind of kinder, gentler capitalism. This is in sync with the values of the 60s generation. So a question that I have that's a bit far afield, but I'm just curious what you think about it. So to, to me, again, as a layperson looking at the 1980s, you see all this culture of, you know, electronic sounds, computer sounds become big in music. They become big in movies. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me not uh, a, a lot of the 1920s when people talked about man-machine interaction. Um, I was just curious, why do you think the 80s has this big cultural valence of computing? I, I mean, there's the famous Apple ad. But even beyond that, 
Devo, all these bands have this like digital sound. Uh I was just wondering, Uh I know a bit far field, but I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on sort of the cultural impact here of Uh the 1980s being this sort of tech decade. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, this is partially, this is a good reminder too, to remember that even as we're talking about politics and, um, you know, political economy, we can't forget about the technology itself and what it is enabling um, and how it is sort of dovetailing so neatly with the culture. (laughs) Because why is, you know, what happens in the 80s is that the products of the technology industry become consumer products. They become consumer face. For the first time, ordinary people can buy these devices and have them in their homes or their offices. They can play around with them. Young people can play around with video games. They can play around with making music on the computer. They can, you know, there were all sorts of, uh, all sorts of interfaces now, all kinds of apps and software that you didn't have to write yourself that you now could, could use in, and also in more broadly in, you know, just spilling out into other industries that don't have to do, you know, there aren't classically computer hardware or software. So in the, the recording industry, again, this is all about miniaturization. You have these powerful chips, these microprocessors that are becoming smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper and more powerful and more powerful, right? This is Moore's law, kind of cramming more circuits onto each chip and making it more powerful. And so as the price dra- drives down, you now can have a, you know, a synthesizer that is at a price point that is no longer, you know, it is something that a, a, a you know, up and coming band could buy. <laughs> and so there are these, but I think there's also, you know, where it's dovetailing with the culture is indeed kind of it signals modernity. It signals future tense looking forward. There's a lot about, you know, look, the 1970s for, um, you know, these industrial nations, um, the kind of the the ones that were on top, notably the United States. It has been a decade of economic struggle, of challenge, of when all of so many of your priors are challenged. And so looking forward at something that is pulling away from the old and looking to the new and embracing the new, and certainly the technology industry and its leaders and its financiers are really, really doubling down on that message. Like we are the future. We are looking forward. We are not dragged down by the past and these old institutions. And it's it's very closely connected to kind of anti-bureaucratic impulse that's that's coursing through American culture in particular at this moment across the political spectrum, anti-institutional. Like you want to have the power in your own hands. The individual can manipulate these devices and create entirely new things. Thanks. That's super interesting. So so what happens to the tech industry over the course of the 1980s? What are the broad trends of which listeners should be aware? Basically, in the, that decade when it was a consumer industry, not yet internet focused. Yeah. So the first half of the decade is really dominated by the story of the personal computer. The personal computer as a device in homes and in offices and in schools. 
And those are the three big markets, um, schools and then higher education as part of that educational piece. Uh, that, and it is a, there is a war for, um, among, you know, hardware manufacturers for who's going to dominate. Um, in the beginning, it's these small companies, um, including Apple and also existing electronics manufacturers, um, like Tandy, which is also our, uh, which is also Radio Shack. Um, unsurprisingly, Radio Shack was a place when, when, Personal computing was still in its hobbyist phase and people were building their own machines in the early days. They would go to Radio Shack and buy the parts, right? So then Radio Shack was like, oh, if people are buying the parts, why don't we just, you know, build a computer? And so they built really cheap, you know, uh, very popular devices, the TRS-80, known as the Trash-80, which was this really <laughs> cheap but utilitarian machine. And this is also happening in, you know, the, the first half of the really the second half of the 70s and the first half of the 80s is also the the beginning of video games and mania for video games. First as, you know, Atari consoles that you hook into your television and then software that you play with on your computer. And that's kind of this gateway drug to programming. So think about, um, for example, some, you know, teen movies from the early 80s and how computers figure in them and who's using them, right? So War Games is a great, uh, I mean, what a fantastic, uh, if anyone has not watched War Games and either ever or in, you know, recent years, watch it again. It is, there's a lot going on. You got, you know, nuclear war, the cold, end of the Cold War, computing, gender, uh, bureaucracy, power, AI, robot overlords, it's all in there. It's great. And Matthew Broderick with his sidekick, Ali Sheedy, who doesn't get to touch the computer, but she's very helpful. And that's telling. But there are also, you know, even more kind of films like, you know, Weird Science and um, Revenge of the Nerds. And the, again, all of a sudden, these kind of nerdy guys who can play around with computers and build cool things are suddenly part of the culture. But there's a real market to this. I mean, there is a lot of money being made. One of the things, and this, the other company that's on the ascent or really defining what the decade and what will happen after become, of course, is Microsoft, which has also in the fateful year of 1980, uh, has the great good fortune to strike a deal with IBM to write the operating systems and, and software for its new personal computer because IBM was hustling to bring this hardware to market, didn't have time to develop its own software, which previously it always bundled the software with whatever it sold. And so Microsoft gets this and also cuts a deal that says, okay, IBM all of the, the the design of the hardware here cannot only IBM has to agree to let other companies build clones of this hardware. So thus our software can also run on it. And that creates an entire industry. So companies like Compath and then later Dell and others are building IBM clones. That's the, you know, window, what we know now is Windows devices. So now we still live in a world that's bifurcated on the desktop between Windows and Mac. And that world is set in place in the early 80s. Is there any, again, layperson, I always heard about like Windows fighting with Mac, like Gates stole it from Jobs. How does that relationship between these two giant software companies develop over the course? So, sorry, not software, uh, software and a hardware company develop yeah. over the course of the 80s. Yeah, well, um, we, you know, we remember, or at least pop culture reminds us of the enmity and the rivalry between the two, uh, Jobs and Gates. But what is forgotten is that actually in the, at the beginning, they were very important business collaborators and partners. 
that Microsoft wrote software for Apple machines, that there was um, a, a real close partnership. And that broke apart when Microsoft uh, released Windows, which was using a graphical user interface, essentially poaching what the Mac was doing. But of course, that where both of those, the original idea for both of those things came from Xerox Park, developed in the, de- in the decade before, where all these folks were messing around on Xerox's payroll, and that's where the graphical user interface is developed. So there is, continues to be a, you know, who stole what from whom. And Gates has come back to Jobs, who said, you know, you've, you're stealing our stuff, saying, you know, essentially, you, you stole it first. Like, this is not, this is not a, you know, I'm just iterating. And that, of course, this is the, the you know, something that I think is really important to remember about all these companies. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis, overemphasis on innovation and invention. They're innovators. And, and, um, and we can kind of parse, like, what does innovation really mean? But like, if we kind of go down to, like, are they inventors, right? Okay, so Thomas Edison was an inventor. 1,700 patents. He's just, he's just making stuff and patenting it and original. Yes, okay. Fast forward to Jobs and Gates. They're not Thomas Edison. They are many other fabulous, amazing things. But what they are doing is they're iterating on someone else's invention. And they're finding a way to bring it to market and to scale it, which in itself is as important, if not more, (laughs) than actually inventing. But there's actually not a lot of innovation or invention that's going on in these companies at any point. Continue. In, in today as well, that's also a question of like, why don't these companies innovate anymore? And you're like, eh, you know, they, they may be innovating in the, you know, maybe when they were graduate students, they were creating new things. But they these companies are not, you know, what they are because they invented something and they were the first ones to do it. They created, they took someone else's stuff and they figured out a way to make it a mass market product. Peter Thiel is going to be so angry at us for this. This is not the editorial position of American Prestige. Yeah, I Elon, hope he doesn't Please don't pick us off Twitter. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's funding uh, this. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of his company? Mithril, some like Lord of the Rings thing. Uh, so, Palantir. So, yeah, it is what, all Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Exactly. It's so, so cool. Uh, so what do we have to know before we get into the internet? Because obviously I think... We're going to talk about the rise of the internet and where that came from, and we could talk about that in terms of innovation. But where are these companies standing sort of on the precipice of the 1990s? Well, we need to know two things. And the first, one thing we do need to know is we need to remember Japan. And and the Japan story is actually kind of is another good, like leads us into a reminder that Silicon Valley, then and now, has never been a monolith. It has contained multitudes. And 1980s Silicon Valley had the personal computer industry, which was up and to the right. And it had the chip industry, which was larger, more lucrative, more, you know, and they are, they're, they're not selling to consumers. They're putting things inside other machines, right? Intel inside. Uh, they are, they are not as, um, you know, maybe as well known to the consumer. But they are having a really, really tough go of it in the late 70s and early 80s because of Japanese competition because of the developmental state, developmental capitalism in Japan is investing heavily and subsidizing chip development and rapidly accelerating chip development in Japanese um, Japanese firms. And they are not only bringing out cheaper chips, they're bringing out more advanced next-gen chips quicker than Silicon Valley can produce them. And so there's this very interesting moment where all of these kind of small government, Republican, libertarian-inclined CEOs of 
chip companies who are kind of old school, you know, they're, this is an older generation than the PC generation. Um, and they are going to Washington, going to the Reagan administration <laughs> at hand and saying, please do something to protect us. We need some trade protectionism, please. And this um, ultimately, one of the things that comes out of this by the end of the 80s is a entity called Semitech, which was this public-private partnership that has it actually is really that, you know, if we look at the CHIPS Act of 2022, passed last year, this big $50 billion investment in semiconductor production, Semitech was kind of the mini, you know, the, maybe the beta version of that. I mean, it was a big deal then, but it wasn't as much money, but it was this um, effort between industry and government to develop uh, accelerate development of chip of chip development. Ironically, it comes into being at the end of the eighties. Only you know at the moment that the asset bubble in Japan peaks, and by the nineteen early nineteen nineties, Japan's no longer the threat it once was. So, Japan's an important part of this story. And again, that the PC makers aren't they don't really care. <laughs> they, they don't. They're going to buy their chips from anywhere. But the chip makers are really having a, a tough time of it. But the back end of the 1980s, it's really interesting. You know, this is a cyclical industry. Um, the PC, PC has its moment um, in the in the beginning of the 80s, but really by the end of the 80s, that market is it's still big, but it's kind of you know it's plateauing because it can only grow so much and so fast. There isn't well, well every industry needs to grow forever until uh, capital. Yeah, yeah, it yeah turns yeah, out exactly. that that's the model. Turns out, yeah. <laughs> But there's, um, you know, it was, and so there were a lot of stories. I, I need to write, I have a, I need to, um, I have a very um, neglected newsletter that I need to, <laughs> I need to write more often, but I have an idea. I think the next one I write, I need to write about this. this there's a cover story in Time Magazine, you know, Time and Newsweek are always kind of the zeitgeist um, barometers that's titled How Gray Was My Valley. And it's from 1991. And this is, you know, at the end of, there's the end of the Cold War. So the defense industry, which is still pretty robust and has a significant presence in California, but also including important to the Valley too. Lockheed, through the 1980s, our friend Lockheed Missiles in Space, they are still numerically the largest employer in Santa Clara County. So, you know, keep that in mind. You still have a lot of defense work. After the end of the Cold War, that's, that's diminishing significantly. The PC market is plateaued. There isn't really a next big thing clearly obvious on the horizon. You have, you know, PCs, workstations, you have CGI at Silicon Graphics, you have some kind of cool stuff, but not kind of the next big thing. And so this cover story is how gray was my valley and talking about how everyone's in the, you know, very, very gloomy in the valley. And, um, even Silicon Valley Bank, our friends at Silicon Valley Bank um, are having hard, hard time. <laughs> it's, it's uh, they don't the even know what's coming. <laughs> the echoes are, are yeah, they're, the housing market that I have uh, a lot of money in that place. Don't uh, don't don't spoil this for me. I, I haven't been reading the news lately, but uh, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, there, it is not, it's kind of waiting for the next big thing and it isn't very clear what it is. And, um, but at the same time, you know, this is, this is where, you know, we go to the other side of the country and you, and actually around the world, um, there, the, what originally originated as the ARPANET at the Department of Defense in 1969, which has been used by that point for 20 years as a network for 
people with ver- with supercomputers to communicate with other supercomputers and and to send email to one another along along the way. Um, it had de- it was it had developed into a global network um, that a number of governments and co- you know uh, governmental or a- NGO and or academic coalitions around the world were maintaining. It was a place that you could enter and use. If you were government funded or a contractor by the 1980s, the governance of it had moved over from the Defense Department to the National Science Foundation. And it was just starting to open up to um, non other to the wall, what they called a walled garden of the of the Internet was starting to open up to other entities that could have a, a foothold on it. But you couldn't buy or sell anything on it. It was a non-commercial space. And so at this moment of gloom in 1990, 1991, there are moves made in Washington that nobody pays attention to except a handful of people, handful of nerds. And those are moves to open up that walled garden to commercial activity. And so here's another great confluence and for you. And we all lived happily ever after. And we all lived happily ever after. Now, so thinking... <sighs> Let's let's to situate this story in geopolitics, and this it, this is kind of one of those you know those funny kind of accidents of timing that but they so, so delight people like us, right? December nineteen ninety one. This is the the week that Boris Yeltsin et al are meeting to officially dissolve the Soviet Union. The the week that it goes away, I think it's either the day before or the day after. George H.W. Bush, President Bush, the first President Bush, signs into law the Supercomputing and High Power Computing Act of 1991. Nobody's paying attention. But that law, co-sponsored by Senator Al Gore of Tennessee, it did not invent the Internet, but it enabled the commercial Internet. It enabled the, 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 the Internet as we know it to happen. And that those two things happening, I and mean, think about that, like how this post, the, the confluence of, you know, the post-Cold War world and how technology companies, American technology companies, and particularly Californian and Seattleite technology companies have shaped that world, what influence they continue to have on it. And that coming into being at almost the exact same time that the old world is officially going away, it's... It's, again, another fodder for my newsletter, (laughs) if I ever write it. Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here. And I wanted to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, you may have heard on the podcast recently a baby in the background, and it is indeed true that I've recently had a kid. But my parents, unfortunately, and like many of us, live pretty far away. But one way I've been able to update them on my baby's life is with Aura Digital Frames. I've been constantly sending them photos of him in all states, crying, laughing, what have you. And I can tell they really love it because they constantly ask for more photos. It's really been an amazing way for us to stay in touch and for them to feel like they're able to watch my baby 
baby grow up in a real way. It's an awesome way to stay in contact with people you love who might not live super close. And other people agree. Aura Frames was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, and Fast Company said the simple, stylish digital picture frame can replace social media in your life, which is good for all of you, I know. Moreover, from now through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, you can visit AuraFrames.com and get $40 off their best-selling Carver matte frame with the code PRESTIGE. This is their best deal of the year, so get yours now. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com with the promo code PRESTIGE. And as always, terms and conditions apply. So, Margaret, I'm, I'm sorry to... This kind of pulls us out of the chronological narrative, but I have to ask this because you talked about the, uh, I would say, self-delusion. I mean, you could use a different term, but uh, that many Silicon Valley titans have that they're all great inventors and how that's not not really the case. And I'm, I have to ask about the other great self-delusion, which is that these guys all seem to believe that they are rugged individualist industrialists who want government to get off their backs and uh, you know, we don't, all we need is to be allowed to do our thing. How, where does that develop given the history of this place built in, you know, the internet's, as you say, built on ARPANET, which is a massive yeah, government project. You have chip manufacturers who, you know, when things get rough, they run to the government and say, we need protectionism. Okay. Where does this sense of like, we're somehow independent from the government and stand apart from it uh, and don't need it come okay. from? Well, this is what makes this such an American story, um, which is the, you know, the United States has always built government by stealth, right? We have a welfare state that kind of bubbles underneath the surface that, uh, you know, what, pe- what, what most people identify as quote unquote welfare are means tested benefits that go to people below a certain income threshold and they're pretty stigmatized. But in fact, every, everyone is a welfare recipient, <laughs> of some kind, right, benefiting from government, public spending. And um, and Silicon Valley is no different. Um, the, you know, the way that, yes, it was built by the defense spending, but that defense spending flowed indirectly through universities to private companies, defense contractors and subcontractors and sub-subcontractors. And this ecosystem was, you know, always, you know, one step removed in the 1970s, that that defense kind of beating heart becomes less obvious, and the, the valley and the industry is less dependent on it. But what also was happening in the 1980s at this moment of great excitement about these new industries, again, Democrats and Republicans being like, this is the future. What can we do? This is the future of American, you know, com- America's comeback, American prestige. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is these are the, the industries that will define. This is where we can have leadership again. They are doing a great deal to smooth the runway, as I like to put it, to allow takeoff. And over the eighties and nineties, you have from you know starting with things like accelerated depreciation for capital investment for you know tech companies and R and D tax credits, which have been really really. Important. They're they're one of the reasons that when um, you know tax season rolls around and there are stories about Amazon's paying effectively zero percent zero corporate tax. Well, the R and D tax credit is one of those reasons tech companies in particular pay 
what seemed to be very little in corporate taxes. Um, there are many other reasons too, but that's one of them. And going into the 1990s, even the, this moment of commercializing the internet, it is done with a kind of federal orchestration and blessing, but it is very much allowed to be a privately directed project um, where, you know, you have private sector internet service providers. You have, you know, this is not a public utility. And it could have been. I mean, there were conversations. If you dial back to the the late 60s and 1970s when computer communication was first a thing, um, when it was still time sharing and, um, uh, you know, th- it was not internet based, but there was conversation about, well, should this be like we do telephony? Should, should this be a public utility? Should this be like the electric company and regulated as such, um, where you do have private companies, but it's highly regulated. And, and this is, you know, so let's also think about the timing, right? This is the, this is the eighties and the early nineties, um, 12 years of Republicans in the white house. Democrats are moving to the center. Centrist Democrats are in ascendance. The Democrats have been, you know, 1984, 1988, they take those two lessons and they realize the only way we're going to get back to the white house is with, a, a new, you know, new faces and a new stance that, among other things, is more friendly, seeming more friendly to the private sector and is letting the private sector, you know, take, have a, have a you know, neoliberalism is something that is um, in fashion across the political spectrum. And so the the timing of, you know, where you, and that's why I really love this, the, the you know, again, the, the dovetailing, the confluence of technology, politics, markets. They're all just working in sync with one another and culture um, and this desire, um, you know, at a very individual or partisan or group level or industry level to do certain things. They're all working in concert. So you essentially get a very, you know, a very privatized system that is enabled by public policy. And but it's very it, but it's also policymakers themselves are cheering along the cowboy imagery, the rugged individualist. I mean, this is not something, and it's not you know if we dial back to the 19th century, and you know the, there there are plenty of instances of the kind of you know pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and emphasizing the individual over the collective. Um, but this is you know really in response to what's seen as a failure of the New Deal order. And the limits of Keynesian economics that, um, and, you know, the, the eighties and the nineties are living the aftermath of the 1960s and seventies. And the people who are in charge, increasingly in charge are of that generation, this, you know, baby boom generation. Bill, Bill Clinton's the first baby boom president and Al Gore is his vice president. And, um, and Gore is actually a very, very critical, pivotal figure in this. I mean, he and, and actually Newt Gingrich and Al Gore were about with some of the very few people in Congress in the 1980s who were paying any attention to this stuff. And then in the 1990s, they end up being Speaker of the House and Vice President. So it's not surprising that, you know, you have this, you know, a very, very receptive bipartisan audience for what Silicon Valley is selling in the 90s. So how does the Internet reshape this industry? Two things. Pivot from hardware to software and money, big money. The 1990s is when Silicon Valley becomes the new Wall Street. It becomes the place where MBAs graduate and they're like, should I go work in an investment bank or should I go work at 
a place like Microsoft or a startup in, in the Silicon Valley, some .com with a weird name, you, you know, with an exclamation point at the end. And they're ch- often choosing that weird sounding .com. And in some cases, that is a very good bet. And the pivot from hardware to software is a really, really important one because that really just changes so much about scale, about uh, what are you know what's what you need, what the tech is, what tech in, and what it in, and how it is created, and what sort of workforce is there and visible. Hardware production doesn't go away, but by the time you get to the 1990s, it's almost entirely outsourced elsewhere. It's happening in Texas. It's happening in Mexico. Um, NAFTA is a, you know, also happening right around this time. So that's, you know, you have th- these broader forces of, um, of globalization that are flattening, um, the world. And there's, and a lot of, and a lot of manufacturing obviously going off on in Asia. It's still as dirty as ever, but it's out of sight. <laughs> so, uh, and, and now, uh, Silicon Valley itself becomes a place that is, um, its visible workforce, tech workforce is, white collar. It's white collar professionals, college educated professionals. And it is a software, the the profits, everything is faster. So Netscape is a company that is founded in 1994. It commercializes the fir- one of the first internet browsers, which is developed at the University of Illinois, thanks to the 1991 Supercomputing Act. Thank you, George Bush and Al Gore. And it is, uh, you know, the group of uh, graduate students and, and faculty who develop it. Um, some of them move out to the Valley. One of them, notably Mark Andreessen, who's now a leading and very well-known venture capitalist, moves out not to, actually moves out to the Valley not to immediately commercialize Mosaic, which is what the browser was called. He's just going out because he realizes this is, you know, I could do something. And then very quickly, the powers that be in Silicon Valley, venture capitalists, uh, the people who are picking winners of the new generation who are looking for the next big thing, see Mosaic and say, this is the commercial version of this could be something. Because this is this portal, this new, the problem with the internet, it might be open now to anyone who wants it, but no one who, most people don't understand how to get in. If anyone listening is old school enough to remember accessing the internet before something like Netscape, before a browser, it was, you know, kind of like, you know, it, it was a, it was a DOS environment. You were typing in commands. Um, it, it was not a graphical user interface or not something that was as um, accessible or, or legible to someone who was not already familiar with computer programming. I've got a, I've got some seaplanes in the background, just background noise to give you some <laughs> some Seattle um, sense of place. So I apologize for that. But the, you know, there's a, uh, so Netscape is founded in 1994. It's Andreessen, but not Andreessen alone. It's financed by Kleiner Perkins, which is one of the, by this point, kind of very successful, well-established venture capital firm. Andreessen is uh, supervised by someone who's uh, brought in as a CEO, Jim Barksdale and, uh, and Jim Clark. Uh, who's another sort of seasoned valley hand who are older and know how to run companies. And uh, Netscape in, in 14 months later is going public in this huge IPO that kicks off the dot-com boom. Now, it was huge. It was by the standards of the past decade, 
tiny. <laughs> it was about in, in 2023 $20, around $3 billion IPO. So it's, it's really small, but it was a big deal. And then it's just off to the races. What is this dot-com boom that everyone talks about actually? The dot-com boom is a uh, It's the period. greatest time in, in American history, Danny. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's what it is. It goes without saying. It kicks off really in earnest in 1990. Well, the Netscape IPOs in 1995. It's kind of, let's say, you know, 95, 90, 96 through 99, 2000. So it's a pretty brief period of stock market excitement and euphoria, media hype and excitement over these brand new companies with funny names that are commercializing the internet. They're basically software apps for the internet. Um, and there are also some um, companies like Cisco that's providing, you know, networking routers. And the, you know, again, the hardware is still very important, not as not, not as sexy, not getting as much attention. But these companies are just as Jobs and Gates a decade earlier. They're led by these very young men in, uh, again, Time Magazine, Zeitgeist. One of my favorite Time Magazine covers is of Mark Andreessen sitting on a golden throne <laughs> Um, barefoot because, you know, tech, they're always <laughs> photographed barefoot, um, grinning ear to ear. And uh, it's kind of talking about the, uh, I think that the term that I think is only used on the cover of this magazine, because it is the silliest word ever, instantaires, meaning instant millionaires. Anyway, um, so now it's all about money. It's not just, oh, this tech is cool. People are making so much money. Like they're making a lot of money. It's mostly on paper. But this gold rush is... That was my question. What is like the mechanics of it? Is it real money? Because I feel like the economy just no. becomes completely disconnected from anything starting in the 1990s. So what what you say people are making money, what are they actually making? Is this financialized they, bullshit money? Is it real money? Are people buying this product and using it and actually generating dollars? Well, if your timing is right, you can actually get some liquidity out of it. But what's happening is a company is is having a... Uh, a Wall Street offering. The stock is being run up really, really high. The The employees of said company ha hold stock options. And if their stock options mature and they can sell them when that run up is happening, then they cash out and they get lots of money. What happens in most cases is that these young 20-somethings have a moment where they're worth technically based on the stock price at that moment that they can't sell yet because it's still locked up. They have the, what's known in the Valley as golden handcuffs. So you usually have, you get a kind of tranche of stock, you know, over four years, like every year you get a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. So to keep people from job hopping. But, uh, you know, you could have a net worth of many, many millions of dollars. Now that's all, yeah, it's all funny money. It's all fake. <laughs> um, but there is real value being um, developed. Now, who's who's really being able to cash out? Who's really getting real money out of this? It's the venture capitalists who are very early investors in these companies, who invest money for a percentage of ownership of the company, who are in a position upon the IPO to exit and get their, you know, get their take. And so this is a moment when these venture capital firms, many of whom were 
kind of the the big kind of established ones were founded by uh, or co-founded by people who were veterans of chip companies, uh, who were microchip people. And that's when these VC firms just go to the moon. And that's when there's just, and then they have a lot of money to now reinvest in and, and cred. So they have these limited partners that want to come in and like, yeah, I want to be in your next fund because you made so much money on Yahoo or Netscape or Amazon. And so the people who really don't get any upside from the dot-com boom are often the retail investors, the ordinary people who are opening E-Trade accounts. That was another dot-com darling itself, that kind of allowing people to suddenly do, become day traders and buy and trade stock. This is a repeat of the 1920s, right? Where they come in and they're coming in as the hype is cresting and then they're there for when it all crashes down and they find themselves underwater. Before we get to the crash, how is the culture of the tech industry transforming? So there's always this like individual entrepreneur sort of vibey hippie thing going on, particularly in the 70s, it becomes a bit more corporatized in the 80s. But I mean, now we're getting into a time I remember. And, you know, this is kind of pre Facebook campus, Google campus. But what's happening in this interregnum in terms of like the business culture of Silicon Valley and the tech industry there? Yeah. Well, you have a lot of companies that are run by very young men who are software developers and engineers. So it's actually a different skill set than the hardware engineers, electrical engineers that were company founders or executives in the first couple of generations of companies. It's a different skill set. Steve Wozniak was, you know, able to develop, uh, build this beautiful, beautiful motherboard that went inside the Apple II. Um, uh, he, you know, he was a hardware designer. Um, the, the darlings of, you know, someone like Mark Andreessen is not a hardware person. He's a software person. He's a, he's a, you know, software engineer. He's a computer scientist. Computer science is a discipline and, um, it's adjacent, um, you know, skill sets become very, very valuable if you're a full stack engineer. This is a moment when, you know, engineers, uh, software engineers kind of become the the center of the action. It's a very inge- engineer driven culture. But the 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 people who are really um, providing the money and the mentorship, the venture capitalists, are many of them veterans of the chip industry and have perhaps also the personal computer industry, and they're instilling a kind of a business ethos that was very much crafted in that earlier era of chip making, which has always been characterized by moving fast, maybe not explicitly saying you're breaking things, but moving fast and having sharp elbows to get yourself be first to market and try and enlarge your market position as quickly as possible. Growing fast is a ethos that is these very, again, these very young men who are not, don't know anything about running businesses are um, being encouraged to do. They're being encouraged to grow fast, partially because it's a fast moving industry. And if you aren't fast, if you aren't first, you're going to just, there's going to be no point. But also because the market is moving fast and there's so much hype. The hype cycle is, is it's, it's going really, really at a high pitch. And it's interesting because someone like, for example, actually Jeff Bezos and Amazon is this kind of unusual um, and gets a lot of heat for it at various points by 
I, he's a fast moving guy too, but also was a very kind of long term, I've got a long term plan sort of person. And I'm looking towards, you know, I'm building, I'm selling books now, but really what we want to do is sell everything later. And that was something that caused, you know, that there was some challenge there for, I mean, Amazon during when, and we'll talk about the crash in a minute, but, you know, Amazon was a dot com darling. And then it was Amazon.bomb. It was this poster child for like, look how hypey everything was. But down in the valley, this move fast, grow fast ethos is still, that is the DNA. And that, you know, looking into this moment of the 1990s and seeing how these companies are growing and accelerating and going high and then crashing down. Um, and then everyone's piling in, you know, there are other people who are, you know, just in, in there's so much money flowing into the system. The other thing that's happening, which is comparable to the era we've just come out of, is that interest rates are low. This is the moment of, you know, this is Alan's Greenspan's moment. This is the broader macroeconomics of the 1990s that are being encouraged by the Clinton administration. It's also time of deregulation. Um, and uh, and I should actually probably put a, a, a bookmark in here as a sort of disclaimer, but context. At this time, I was actually working in the Clinton administration. I worked from there. I worked on the campaign in 1992 and was there from 93 through 97. Funnily enough, even though at one point for two years that I worked for Al Gore, I never worked on tech policy at all. <laughs> I was oblivious to it. <laughs> um, I worked on other things. But, um, but you know, this was a, a, a real, you know, the Silicon Valley companies are ones that are really being nurtured and celebrated and brought into the fold at the White House and also um, the Republican leadership in, in the House in particular because of Gingrich. So they're getting a lot of encouragement and and the boom itself is em embraced and encouraged by regulators and investors alike. So just two final questions. I don't want to lose sight of Silicon Valley itself, you know, from this prune space to something different. So what has it become over the course of the 80s and 90s? Are, is real estate becoming ridiculous there? What happens to the actual place itself? Yeah, the place itself undergoes a lot of change. Um, coming into the 1980s and really, you know, even through the first part of the 1980s, there's still a lot of orchards. There's still a lot of a lot of fruit trees. It's still somewhat sleepy. Again, you know, up until the time of video games and personal computing, there were no consumer-facing industries. Silicon Valley as a catchphrase was something that didn't appear in papers like the Washington Post or the New York Times until the early 1980s. People didn't know about it. And even then, it was kind of in these scare quotes, like Silicon Valley. It's sort of weird. And people would usually call it Silicon Valley because, you know, couldn't it, some, a lot of people still do. It, so it was this kind of off to the side. Um, and, and even through the 1990s, to be honest, it was still somewhat off to the side of the main action of American capitalism. If you opened the business section of the New York Times, the B1 stories, even through most of the 1990s, were not going to be about tech companies. Maybe through the late, in the late 90s, with the, the height of the dot-com boom, they, there was more and more reporting. The New York Times didn't even have a tech reporter um, or someone defined as that until the early 1980s. They had people writing about tech, but that wasn't like, this is your beat, right? So this was not a big thing. By the time you get to the dot-com bust, um, 
there is, you know, the story is, oh, well, this was irrational exuberance. This was another tulip mania. This is, you know, wow, that was crazy. Okay, moving on. What's kind of actually left behind is, yes, a lot of companies going out of business, a lot of pink slick parties, a lot of MBAs now kind of picking up and packing up their San Francisco apartments and going somewhere else. But you also have a venture capital community, venture capital firms as a whole, who are exiting the dot-com boom with a lot more money than they started. And you're also exiting the 1990s with the internet having proven its many use cases. That even though there were a lot of things that flopped, like selling dog food on the internet, not going to work in 1999, 2000, because there wasn't the infrastructure. But what was clear was that, oh, yeah, the whole economy can go on the internet. This is this is a big thing. There are a lot of things you can do online, communication, commerce, that you could not do any other way. This is a sea change. And I think that's a really important distinction if we dial back to the, you know, misty, you know, let's say 14 months ago when all anyone could talk about was Web3 or whatever the hell that was. That one of the reasons that it was, you know, whatever the hell it was, there wasn't really a use case for like, okay, so why is the blockchain, like, what can you do that you couldn't do on the internet? Um, And that's why the internet was so transformative. So even, you know, coming into this century, there is a lot of physical infrastructure, as well as, you know, companies that are left. Yes, the, the dizzying stock prices go down, but there's still a lot of there there. And that becomes the foundation for what happens next. That's a perfect place to end. Margaret O'Mara, everyone pick up the code. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks. Thanks.